There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died, and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place, so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them, so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. How shall we understand this parable? Is Jesus simply saying that there is an automatic reversal between one's status in this life and one's status in the next? Live life well, end in hell. Suffer pain, enjoy great gain. For that is the way not a few people take it. But so much of Scripture stands against such a simplistic reversal that questions must at least be asked. After all, there are some God-blessed and God-approved rich people in the Bible. Abraham, Solomon, at least in the early years, Esther, Philemon, probably Theophilus. And there are some poor who are wicked. For although the Bible does say lots of things about how God is concerned for the poor and against those who oppress them, the Bible, especially Proverbs, is realistic enough to recognize that sometimes poverty emerges out of alcohol or laziness or short-term thinking or the like. So how does one integrate such simple reversal theology with all of these other powerful biblical themes? Moreover, if it is merely a matter of reversal, then you really don't need the cross. So you return once again to what the Gospel of Luke is actually doing. Now, in this case, instead of going through the parable first and then looking at some surrounding features, I'm going to suggest we do it the other way. I'm going to draw your attention to some of the surrounding themes, and then we'll come to the parable itself. So, Luke chapter 16, verse 13. Luke 16, 13. No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. So there's the generic point, you can't serve two masters. And there's the specific point, 
with the master, the competing master in view being mammon, money, wealth. You cannot serve both God and money. The problem with money is that it so easily becomes a master. What we pursue, what we serve, is the measure by which we judge others. What we pursue strongly enough is for us God, which is why the Apostle Paul can say that covetousness is idolatry. In other words, money so thought of de-gods God. It is, in that sense, the ultimate thing in our lives and thus the God that displaces the God who is there. So, in the context, Jesus is talking about the negative effects of wanting money, of loving money, of pursuing money, of serving money. Second, a little farther back, verse 11. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? Some of us had a barbecue last night at Dr. Gibbs' place, and we were talking about this particular parable. I gather that one of your illustrious faculty members preached in chapel on this. Was it in chapel or was it in church? In church. Oh, well, you'll have to get him to expound the passage to you um, uh, in detail yourself. He follows, which I think is wise, the suggestion of um, uh, Fitzmaier that in the parable of the shrewd manager or the unjust steward or whatever it's going to be called in your particular uh, uh, translation, um, he was not actually robbing his master by marking down the cost. He was actually uh, cutting off his own profit and um, not robbing the master, but cutting off his profit for longer-term gain, namely that he would be accepted by these people once he actually lost his position of employment. I think that's correct, but whether it's exactly correct or not, it's the end of the parable that is important for our purposes. Namely, there is shown a certain kind of shrewdness in using what wealth we do have to advance our places here, to make our position here a little more secure. It becomes astonishingly foolish for us um, uh, to imagine that, that, that somehow with no concern for our eternal well-being, uh, God will then grant to us eternal life. Then, in the third place, verses 14 and 15, which I actually read in connection with the previous parable. The Pharisees who loved money heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. He said to them, you are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others, but God knows your hearts. What people highly value, value is detestable in God's sight. I won't repeat the summary of that pair of verses that I gave earlier. Moreover, observe that there is a sequence of three parables here. In 15, 11 and following, a prodigal wastes his father's possessions. In 16, 1 to 8, a dishonest steward wastes his master's possessions. And now here, the rich man wastes his own possessions. There is a certain development of a theme here bound up with possessions. And now we come to the parable itself. It is divided into two parts. The narrative, the contrast between two different men, and the dialogue, the blindness of a damned man. First then, the narrative, verses 19 to 23. There's a very simple structure. Many have pointed it out, a kind of A, B, B, A. You find the rich man in life, 
noted for his sumptuous living, Lazarus, the broken beggar, then Lazarus, now in heaven and in Abraham's bosom, and the rich man, now in Hades. And that sequence is picked up later, as we shall see. So the rich man is described in a couple of deft pen strokes as an astonishingly self-indulgent man. There were only two ways of dyeing cloth purple in the ancient world, and both of them were notoriously expensive, which meant that all the rich people wanted it. Um, he was dressed in purple and fine linen. This is referring to underclothing. One or two commentators have said Jesus may have his small grin in place. Even this man's underwear was posh. Um, possible, but in any case, um, the, the point is that this man denied himself nothing. He feasted sumptuously, uh, course after course, properly laid out, laid out in white-gloved attendance, no doubt. And um, in this respect, he uh, does not pay any attention to the needs of those who are around him. By contrast, at his gate was laid a beggar. The fact that the man had a gate showed that he was really well off. It was not an isolated house in some muddy little patch. Um, it was a walled compound with a gate. And in due course, the dogs are going to appear. But as you well know, in the first century, dogs were not primarily pets. In fact, they were virtually never pets. There were no little lovely labradoodles that you took for a walk along with a plastic baggie. Um, rather, they were working creatures. And because they had never been introduced to Scots, who knew how to use dogs to round up sheep, therefore, when they used them as working dogs, they tended to be guard dogs. And in the context of a walled compound, that's probably what they were doing there, guard dogs, a couple of Dobermans, or the ancient equivalent thereof, guarding the master's patch. Um, and that's what, that's what they're doing there. But nevertheless, seen by most Jews as pretty unclean animals. The only other dogs in the Jewish world tend to be wild dogs. Think Australian dingoes or the like. This beggar was laid at the rich man's gate. He was laid there, that is by others, not only because he didn't have the strength to walk, he was so ill, so impoverished, and so close to death, he couldn't even manage to get there himself, but also because in those days there was no national health service, um, there was no private health service, uh, there was simply um, the charity of the rich. So it was expected in village life that those who had um, something to offer would give it to those who had very little. It was expected there, therefore, that this rich man would take him in and do what he could. Most villagers weren't all that rich themselves, but perhaps um, this man could order in some care, have him watched, provided him with a nice place to lie down and something to eat and to drink and the like. That was simply expected of the well-to-do. But here the gate serves to shut the man out. This man, Lazarus, is named the only name to appear in the parables of Jesus. The word itself means, of course, the one whom God helps. And initially, you might be cynical enough to think, if this is the life of the one whom God helps, uh, I sure wouldn't want to be the one whom God does not help. But the point is, you are to read the one whom God helps in the context of eternity, not only of this life. That is the point. You cannot assess who it is whom God helps if you only look at a person's status in this life. You must look beyond. That is important. Meanwhile, the other man is not even named. 
Now, if nobody had been named, it wouldn't have made much difference. But if you have one of the two being named, he's the important one, and the other one has been dismissed. He might be fabulously wealthy, but he is a non-entity as far as God is concerned. This man at the gate, a beggar, so ill that he has sores, bed sores or perhaps or something of that sort, he longs to eat what fell from the rich man's table, that is, the scraps, the leftovers, the man's garbage in effect. Most of our English translations have even the dogs came and licked his sores. But the connective is Allah. It really must be read as an adversative. It can't really be read any other way. And there is something meant to be deeply ironic about that. But the dogs came and licked his sores. They had more, if we can call it compassion, at least the symbol of compassion, than the rich man himself. You will recall in the account of the Syrophoenician woman, woman, she also argues about dogs, how dogs eat the scraps that fall from the tables in another context. So that was what the dogs were doing. They didn't go down to the local Jewel Osco or Tesco or whatever your grocery is here and buy tins of dog food. That wasn't an option. They fed from the scraps from the table. That's what dogs did if they were not wild dingoes, but uh, local Doberman pinchers that were used to guard the place. They fed from the scraps from the table. And there is the irony. This Lazarus longed to eat the dog food from the rich man's table, but the dogs came and licked his sores. So in a few deft pen strokes, you have the contrast between these two men in startlingly vivid narrative. And then Lazarus dies. No mention of a funeral. No indication of where he was buried, though it was probably a common pauper's grave. But he is carried to Abraham's side, more specifically to Abraham's bosom. The language is not accidental, of course. Now, I was brought up in French Canada. And because I was brought up in French Canada, there's a Latin side to my temperament and culture. Um, I can talk with my hands. Um, I'm quite comfortable meeting people from similar backgrounds. Mon frère, on both cheeks. Yes, I can do that. But both my parents were born in the UK, which means that there's another side to my background that teaches me that the appropriate distance between adults is 36 inches or so. <laughs> and then I go to Latin America, where they labor under the delusion that the appropriate distance between two adults is 18 inches or so, which means they are constantly crowding me and I'm constantly backing up. And they constantly crowd me and I constantly back up. So eventually I try experiments. I stick out my foot and see what happens. They stand on it. They think I'm cold. I think they're pushy. And that's just the, the beginning of cultural problems, isn't it, in, in terms of closeness. And then I go and spend some time in the Middle East, and, and you find two men walking hand in hand down the street, of course. And I'm friends of some of them, too, and they want to hold my hand walking hand in hand down the street. So I gulp and say, thank you, Jesus. There are different cultures. And there I'd like to hold my wife's hand. But in some of those places, she'd better walk three feet behind me. Or really, she's breaking a lot of cultural taboos. These, these cultural things are getting in the way of communication here. So what does it mean then for John to lie on Abraham's bosom? Well, the easiest way of getting it across, of course, is to remind ourselves of what takes place in the passion narrative. It appears as if uh, 
John is next to Jesus for reasons that will become clear if you have not thought about this before. Um, in those days, most people did not eat lying on maps unless it were a really festive occasion, but then they did. And um, then they tended to lie on these flat mats, not as big as our single beds, really quite narrow, so people were squashed together. And there would be a chunk of bread at each place, and some bread would be broken off and dipped into the dish puree fruit or puree meat, often lamb, um, and, um, and, and, and be eaten that way. And, and of course, as a mark of friendship, too, you might break off a piece, dip it in, and give it to a friend's mouth, too, which is not our way of showing intimacy. I had a lovely breakfast with um, Dr. Schuckard and Dr. Gibbs this morning, and nobody tried to put any food in my mouth, not once, uh, for which I was most grateful. Uh, nevertheless, in some cultures, that would be a mark of friendship. And if it is a mark of culture here at Concordia, these guys were not all that friendly. What can I say? But this is what goes on at the Lord's Supper. And at some point, Jesus says, um, one of you will betray me. And the buzz goes round that we all remember. Well, Lord, is it I? Oh, surely not I. Oh, can't be that. And then it looks as if Peter, from across the table somewhere, indicates to John, who is next to Jesus, ask him. Ask him. But if John is on Jesus' right, then he's got his back to Jesus. So to talk to him, he simply stretches back and leans his head on Jesus' bosom and asks. So to lay your head on a fellow male's bosom is really part of saying, in effect, it's presupposing, in effect, that, that you're at the place of the right hand. You're in the place of honor, right next to the host, do you see? That's where John was in the Last Supper. So here's Abraham. So here's this man, uh, Lazarus, who could not even the, eat the scraps now lying next to Abraham at the final messianic banquet. He is actually there receiving his good things. He is, he is uh, in Abraham's bosom far away. Lazarus by his side, we read. So he called to him. Um, and then the dialogue begins. The rich man, for his part lifts his eyes in Hades, in this case further identified by the torment that takes place there. In Hades where he was in torment, he looked up. In his case, there is mention of burial. He was buried. One can imagine what that was like. I'm sure there were very fine speeches about all of this philanthropic uh, generosity that uh, was now passing from us and, and the like. We say such wonderful lies at funerals, don't we? And the rich man, apparently, somehow, in the narrative of the story, recognizes both Abraham and Lazarus. It makes no sense to ask the question, how did he manage to do that? that that's not part of the parable's purview to answer such matters. The shocking thing is, is that we would have expected him at this juncture to say, <gasps> did I get that wrong? I am so sorry. Oh, Lazarus, will you forgive me? But what happens instead is just damning, utterly damning. That brings us to the dialogue. There are three quick cycles in each of which the rich man says something and Abraham responds. Cycle one, verse 24. 
the rich man called out to Abraham once he's identified him and says, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. This is simply astonishing. He doesn't even address Lazarus. He recognizes him. Doesn't ask for forgiveness. He still treats him as a menial, as a menial person. A pauper outside his gate. The rich man is still playing the race card. Father Abraham, even perhaps the covenant card. He ignored Lazarus when he was in pain. Now he wants something done to help himself in his own torment and still does not address him. He demands services from the one to whom he would not even give dog food. But he wants the services accomplished by Abraham himself sending him off as a kind of a waiter. Which brings us to a shocking reality. I do not think that there is any place in Scripture that suggests that in hell people repent. This man still thinks that he's at the center of the universe. He still thinks he finds a special ordered place owing to his background and pedigree. He doesn't have to mingle with the riffraff. There's not a hint of repentance here anywhere. None. I do not think that we should conceive of hell as a place where many, many, many broken sinners find themselves in deep frustrated repentance longing to get out, but now it's too late. Oh, they cannot get out and it is too late. But as far as I can see, hell continues forever as a place where you still think you're at the center of the universe and you blame everybody else, including God, for being there. And in an endless cycle, there is more and more sin and idolatry, sin and idolatry and all the curse that brings with it. Abraham's response? Remember, he says, and then in his summary of the narrative, he gives the simple ABBA summary again. Remember, son, that in your lifetime you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things, AB, but now he is comforted here, B prime, and you are in agony, A prime. So he simply summarizes the narrative. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. Well, one can understand why people might want to go from there to us. Why would anyone want to go from us to there? Some have suggested it's plausible, but you can't quite prove it. Some have suggested that the only person around with an earshot who might have wanted to go from us to there is Lazarus himself, maybe feeling compassion and being willing to be the errand boy. But in any case, the text doesn't say that. It's possible. 
Or maybe the point is simply simpler than that. That is, the chasm is fixed. There is no traffic in either direction. Cycle two. Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family. For I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. The rich man himself is now begging. I beg you. But still he is concerned only for his own. If Lazarus, who, still not, is, who is still not addressed by the rich man, nor named by the rich man, if he cannot, uh, rather not addressed by the rich man, even though he's named by the rich man, if he, though if he cannot be sent as a table waiter to bring the rich man water, perhaps he could be used as an errand boy. And Abraham's response, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. Third cycle, verses 30 and 31. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. Now he tries to correct Abraham's theology. People in hell will still be trying to justify themselves and their reasoning and their thinking their own assessments. It is a shocking passage. Moreover, it suggests a common misunderstanding amongst many people now, that if you have the spectacular, you will compel faith. Oh, the spectacular may, in God's mercy, be used to grant faith, witness some genuine repentance and faith in the light of some miracles performed by Jesus and the apostles. But far from compelling it, one remembers another Lazarus, an historical Lazarus, raised from the dead in John 11. And when Jesus performs the miracle, no one could doubt that it was a miracle for, the rich, for, for, for Lazarus had been in the tomb for four days. So long, in fact, that in that heat a fair bit of decomposition had taken place and quite frankly the corpse stank. And some in consequence put their faith in Jesus. And others, they go and rat Jesus out to the authorities. The miracle doesn't guarantee anything. But there are always some people who think that only if, if only we had a miracle, then we would see a whole lot of people converted. You may simply have a whole lot of gullible people professing allegiance without any conversion whatsoever. There is a love of spectacle that extends beyond football games. It extends to every sphere of life and can be peculiarly addictive. Abraham's answer reinforces the point he just made. If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. I can imagine Luke penning this, saying, I know where the story is going. I know where the story is going. Because by the end of his book, of course, someone does rise from the dead. And people still do not believe. Now then, let me dare mention a few pastoral implications once again. Number one, the things in which we take so much pride 
the things which establish our self-identities may actually blind us to our need of grace. Wealth is the one that's front and center here. But ethnicity, power, education, religious privilege, and so forth. And all of those things may, in some contexts, be good things. But they so easily trip us up. I'm thinking now of a student we had recently at Trinity for whom I thank God. He was uh, Haitian-born. He and his mother became refugees to this country quite some time ago. Somewhere along the line, he got into some, in with some good kids. And uh, in his teen years, was brought to faith in Christ and uh, worked hard enough at his schooling that he got a full ride to Princeton. And after Princeton, he came to Trinity, where he was an A-minus student, came right through Trinity, and um, eventually did an internship at a largest church in the Phoenix area, and then was supported by that church to plant a church in downtown Phoenix. Do you know what city in this country has the smallest percentage on a capita, per capita basis of confessional churches in the core of their cities? Phoenix. Because you see, when you and I think Phoenix, we usually think of the suburbs and so on. Anyway, that's where he went. And when you stop to think of it, you see, he, he, he's a minority race, a foreigner, a refugee, but he's got a Princeton degree and a TEDS degree. He's mingled with so many different people. And you can watch this chap. I just love watching the way he intermingled. He was in my chaplaincy group. And you watch the way he could intermingle with anybody. He, he, he could handle the poor and the relatively ignorant and the slow and those who are foreigners and still working on the language. And he just about got over all of uh, his French and Creole accent and his English was very fluent, but he understood that a lot. But he also understood Ivy League and Princeton and, uh, and the rest, you see. He, he, he could talk with anybody. And so sometimes when you, you meet these people with, uh, born with silver spoons in their mouths and the like, they have a certain kind of savoir-faire, don't they, that, that sort of enables them to have a kind of free pass in society. They just know how to get on, don't they? Presidents just love them because they often have money, too. Yes. But they certainly have a certain kind of savoir-faire, don't they? Whereas people from a, 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 a kind of restricted background, born on the wrong side of the tracks and so on, it might take them quite a while to, 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 to actually be able to move comfortably in circles that are not to deeply blue-collar. And so some of the rest of us might begin to envy some of those people. The trouble is, of course, that those sorts of backgrounds also become traps. The difference between a useful a useful for ministry, savoir-faire, a useful for ministry, knowing how to get on with people, easily elides into a sense of entitlement and superiority. Where on earth is the line to be drawn when hearts are as corrupt as ours? To have the resources to be able to do things and give things away and have money and so on, it can be a wonderful thing, but nevertheless, it does, quite frankly, enable us to live more comfortably than a whole lot of other people, too. The heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. But the real question from the parable ultimately becomes, who is Lazarus? Who is the one whom God helps? And the one whom God helps cannot be measured simply in terms of this life. The one whom God really helps has to be measured in the light of eternity. And then all the savoir-faire in the world doesn't make that much difference. 
we must beware of the hugely, potentially corrosive power of even good things. We're not talking a man here. We're talking about a man here who is committed to uh, rape and pillage or who is busy robbing banks or knocking centurions on their helmets. We're talking about a man who's got money, that's all. Second, implicitly then, what Jesus calls the greatest two commandments and which had been raised previously in the earlier paragraph are lurking in the background. They hang or fall together. For what this man displays, clearly, is the failure with respect to the second commandment. He's not loving his neighbor as himself. But what that is betraying on the eternal front is that he does not love God with heart and soul and mind and strength. Otherwise, the eternal consequences make little sense. Third, we must listen to the witness of Scripture or we are damned. God has disclosed himself in many times in many places, as Hebrews reminds us, in great salvific events across the sweep of redemptive history, supremely in the person of his own son, God's self-expression now made flesh. But God has given us the witness of Scripture by which we may know these things and think God's thoughts after him. And we must listen to the witness of Scripture or we are damned. And finally, especially in our day and age, we must, beyond our, we, we must remind ourselves beyond mere creedalism that there is a sphere of rejoicing to pursue and a sphere of torment to flee. Now, I'm not suggesting for a moment that anyone in a gust crowd like this full of orthodox Lutheranism uh, running through their veins with a free course would deny the existence of heaven and hell. But I suspect that for many in Western Christendom, it's a creedal point that does not touch very deeply where we live, where we move, where we think, how we establish our priorities. With respect to the new heaven and the new earth, use that expression. One of the remarkable features of the biblical witness to this theme is the diversity of the pictures. And I suspect that is because it is so far beyond our fondest imaginings that we need the diversity even to begin to get things straight in our head. You know these little cartoon diagrams where people are wearing night, white nightshirts and sitting on puffy clouds and plucking at a harp and that's supposed to represent heaven. If I've got to do that, I'm sure that after a million years or so, I'm going to get pretty bored. But mercifully, the biblical pictures in this respect are, are much better than that. Uh, I know where they come from. They come from originally one or two minor depictions from, for example, the fact that the justified in Revelation are sometimes pictured as wearing white raiment and, um, and the crowd around the throne is playing the harp. Yes, but the, the harp in the ancient world was not the great big instrument that you sometimes see one of in a large orchestra that you put between your legs and press some pedals and pluck some strings. It, it was a happy instrument of joy in the ancient Hebrew world. What's the equivalent for us? A banjo? 
You don't play a lot of banjos at funerals, do you? Because it's a happy instrument. Even if you're not a, given to country western music, it's hard to be really grumpy when a good finger-picking banjo player is really at it. It's really hard. So by the rivers of Babylon, there we hung up our harps. Do you, do you see? How can you sing a song of Zion in a strange land? But now with the dawning of the new heaven and the new earth, you take them all down and you start those banjos going because this is going to be a place of great joy, do you see? So I know where the imagery comes from. But on the other hand, in the parable of the talents, as we'll see this afternoon, there the picture is of um, having more responsibility, more work, uh, more important work, uh, impressive work that God is giving you the strength for. Do you see? It's also the picture of a, a city. It's a social vision. It's, it's not just an individual salvation, but a social vision. But it's not any city. It's the New Jerusalem. Someone has said the book of Revelation is really a tale of two cities. It's either Babylon or the New Jerusalem. And in the New Jerusalem, well, then it's the city of the great king. But this city of the great king is built like a cube. There's only one cube in the Old Testament. That's the most holy place. The whole city of Jerusalem is now the most holy place. That's why John can say, I saw no temple in that city for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. We're always and forever without mediation in the presence of God. And so suddenly the pictures come at you, mixed metaphor after mixed metaphor after mixed metaphor, rammed together to give us a, a panoramic vision of what glory will be like in resurrection existence that's that enables us to touch and, and eat and, 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 and be, in some sense, like Christ's resurrection body, and yet somehow to participate in eternity in the very presence of God with fellowship and singing and rejoicing and work and music. Do you see? Billy Graham thinks there's golf there. Well, I won't go that far. But nevertheless, um, his argument is that if all good things are there, then maybe golf will be there too. I, I, I'm still not that persuaded it's that much of a good thing, but either we will be transformed or golf will be there, I'm sure. So once again, we should, we should think in the broadest possible circle. And in this particular case, the new heaven and the new earth is looked at as a feast in which the poor and the broken eat with Abraham lying on his bosom in intimate connection with the patriarchs and the saints who have gone before. And on the other hand, hell. He lifted up his eyes in torment. It is essential in our defense of what the Bible says about the conscious torment of those in hell to be broken by it. Bertram Shattuck, just over a hundred years ago, wrote a poem. It's not much more than doggerel. And yet, at a certain level, it bites the way our theological summaries do not bite. I dreamed that the great judgment morning had dawned and the trumpet had blown. I dreamed that the nations had gathered to judgment before the white throne. From the throne came a bright shining angel who stood on the land and the sea and swore with his hand raised to heaven the time will no longer, that was no longer to be. And oh, what a weeping and wailing as the lost were told of their fate. They cried for the rocks and the mountains. They prayed, but their prayer was too late. The rich man was there, but his money had melted and vanished away. A pauper, he stood in the judgment. His debts were too heavy to pay. The great man was there, but his greatness, when death came, was left far behind. The angel who opened the record, not a trace of his greatness could find. The moral man came to the judgment, but his self-righteous rags would not do. 
The men who had crucified Jesus had passed off as mortal men too. The soul that had put off salvation, not tonight, I'll get saved by and by. No time now to think of religion. At last he had found time to die. And oh, what a weeping and wailing as the lost were told of their fate. They cried for the rocks and the mountains. They prayed, but their prayer was too late. Brothers and sisters in Christ, if we are going to teach and preach this parable, think eternal terms. Who is the real Lazarus? Or we are just playing around. Let us pray. So grant to us, Lord God, we beg of you, minds to understand your word more closely, wills renewed by your spirit to obey more heartily, hearts enlarged to love you truly and our neighbors as ourselves. By the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ who loved us and gave himself for us, for it is in his name we dare ask these things with confidence. Amen.